A quick warning. We talk in detail about suicide in this episode. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, you can call 988 anywhere in the U.S. to talk with someone who can help. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On this episode, we'll wrap up our look at the Netflix three-week special event for Unsolved Mysteries Volume 3. This time, we'll discuss the episode Body in the Bay. My children need to know what happened to their dad. It's not a pretty story and it doesn't have a conclusion. We don't have answers but I am still trying. Today, we're talking to director Robert M. Wise. Patrick Lee Mullins was a well-loved school librarian and an experienced teacher. After his small boat never returned from an afternoon trip, search crews scoured the waters in and around Tampa Bay. Days later, his body was discovered in a shallow part of the bay, carefully tied to his own anchor, but his empty boat was recovered far out at sea. At first, investigators assumed this was a straightforward suicide, but the cause of Patrick's death wasn't drowning. It was a shotgun blast to the head, and neither blood nor a weapon were found in his abandoned boat. Body in the Bay explores whether Patrick set off to take his own life and hide his own body beneath the salt water, or whether he encountered something he shouldn't have seen, Something that could have cost him his life. He clearly wasn't killed in that boat. There's zero biological evidence in there. So he was killed elsewhere, which pretty reasonable person would conclude was a, means that this was not a suicide. This is a murder. And I'm joined by director Robert M. Wise. Bob, welcome back to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. It's great to be back. Another season. Yes. So you are an original director of Unsolved Mysteries going way back way to back. its first iteration. You were even nominated for an Emmy in 1995. Yeah. And we had you on after volume two came out to talk about the two episodes you shot for that, which were A Death in Oslo and Death Row Fugitive. Right. Um, after those episodes came out on Netflix, what kind of feedback did you get? It, yeah, it just in terms of feedback, we got, obviously, people loved the series, loved the show, and some people thought that the Oslo was the best story. <laughs> I might agree. Uh, no, it, I agree, it, actually. It was my favorite. <laughs> it's a really, it's a great story. But yeah, they, they got, by the way, 2,000 leads. We heard from Lars recently. They got 2,000 sort of, you know, leads, uh, people calling in with, with ideas of who she is and stuff, and, but he still hasn't solved that one yet. Um, and that's wow. great, too. That's the kind of response you want to hear, you know, is that people see the show, love it, and people who think they could help have, have responded. So that's great. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can, here's the iteration three, and hopefully it'll keep going. I'm curious, when the season is in development, um, do you go to the team with an idea, or do they lay out stories and uh, that they're thinking about having you direct? This one was, they kept, they found the story, and... Uh, they asked me if I wanted to direct this one. And I said, absolutely. It's a great mm. story. Yeah. But good stories always have, you know, 
beginnings, middles, and usually endings. But <laughs> if stories had endings for this series, they wouldn't be unsolved mysteries. <laughs> be another series. Um, how do you address that challenge when you know your story is unfinished? You know, we look at it more like what used to be the water cooler conversation where, you know, at the end of the show, people are sort of arguing, discussing, yeah, what about this? And what about that? And I think it's this. And, you know, that's sort of the fun of it sooner than telling in a complete story that has an ending. So we try to make it intriguing and compelling and leave you sort of on the edge of your seat, wondering what happened and, and giving you enough information. You feel like you can discuss it. Yeah. Before we talk about the case of Patrick Mullins, I want to talk about the setting for Body in the Bay. I mean, it's one thing to make Oslo look beautiful and <laughs> scenic, right? But I don't, I don't think people think of Florida necessarily as like a, a, a gorgeous landscape. But you, these these twisting uh, waterways of this locale, I didn't think about the Florida coastline having this mysterious bayou-like Landscape. Did did you know that there was this part of coastal Florida that that could feel this way on film? I I didn't actually. Uh, I mean, I I've been to Sarasota. I mean, I know what the you know the Gulf Ocean, you know, the Gulf uh, beaches look like, but I did know about sort of the Brayton River and those kind of mangroves and and that sort of thing. That was new to me. And yeah, as soon as we saw that and heard the story, we said that's certainly one of the characters to this story is the is the rivers. And there's different rivers. There's the Braid River, which has that mangrove kind of bayou feel. And then there's the Manatee River, which is almost big enough to be considered a bay. And each has its own character as well as its, its role in the story. So we wanted to portray each of those in their own way. Florida is such an interesting place. I mean, so much of it is carved, like by people. Uh, is mm-hmm. the Braden River a natural occurrence? Do you know, or is yeah. that a, a, a uh, landscaped, you know, part of Florida, just like a lot of Florida is? No, no. I think it's. I think it's natural. I think hmm. it's. Um, it's. It's marsh. But you know, you're not that far from the Everglades. Yeah, yeah. So it has that feeling. I'm curious. Um, you know, in terms of Patrick, you know, when you live on a river like that. Being on the water can become like second nature. Mm. Is it fair to assume that Patrick was extremely comfortable being on his little boat in the daytime and in the evening and at dusk and so forth? Absolutely. I mean, he grew up, he and his brothers and I guess sisters all grew up on the water. You know, I think when they were, you know, teenagers, if not before, they had their own boats um, and their parents would let them out on, on the water on their own. So they were very comfortable. And Pat and his brothers were also really mechanical. So... Uh, that's sort of one of the things is if the motor had you know broken down, the sense was that Pat could have figured out a way to fix it. So mm-hmm. it, it's not likely that something like that happened. Or, yeah, it, these guys were at home at the water for sure. Yeah. So Patrick Mullings was this school librarian who set out toward the Manatee River on his little stump knocker flat bottom boat in January of 2013. His body was recovered several days later. Can you tell us a little bit about Patrick, um, what his family and friends just said about him to you? Nice guy. And apparently his students loved him as well. I mean, he's one of those kind of you know, the certain librarians that, that just sort of encourage people to come. And I think he was one of those guys. He'd stay around late, leave the library open for kids, had no place to go. Um, so I think he was one of those teachers and librarians who everybody liked. At the high school where he worked, he was really loved and respected by the kids because he cared. He might have 10 or 12 kids staying until six or seven at night. And he would just stay there and keep the library open. And he always got the children who needed that little bit extra. 
the children who didn't have a father figure in their life. I think he had sort of a quirky sense of humor, but uh, he was on the straight now for the most part. I, he was, you know, as I think Miles says, actually a few of them say, uh, you know, he followed the rules and life is sort of cut and dry and black and white a little bit when it comes to the rules. I guess straight and narrow is probably the way I guess I would describe him. Um, yeah. Really smart um, and experienced and, and a really nice guy. Yeah. Obviously very dedicated to education. I thought it was really interesting that his wife and he both went to grad school at the same time to become librarians. To both become librarians, exactly. Yeah, he was a uh, fourth grade teacher, I think, which I don't think happens that often. Yeah, you know, men, yeah. Having men as you know, fourth grade teachers. That's true. That's true. So it was Patrick's wife, Jill, who first suspected something was wrong when he didn't come back. What happened in those first few hours? She was gone for most of the afternoon. She got back in the evening, came home. He wasn't there, which, you know, in and of itself wasn't that unusual. He did say something to Jill that he was going to go out and run the gas out of the engine. It was getting later, and I got more and more nervous. Then I walked out to where our stump knocker was kept. It was not there. When I realized that the stump knocker was gone, then I realized I needed help. I think when he didn't show up as it was getting dark and she went outside, found his truck there uh, and his cell phone was in the truck, which, again, wasn't that unusual. I don't think he liked cell phones very much. But the boat, the stump knocker was gone. And as it was getting dark, she started to get a little worried. But anybody who she spoke with, including her son, was like, look, dad's fine on the on the water don't worry about it. If his motor breaks down, he'll fix it. Don't worry about it. But then as the evening went on, I think it was around 11, she started to get worried. Um, mm. And she called her son and and she called Pat's brother and they came searching and then they called the police who then called the Coast Guard. So then they had a real, a real search throughout the night into the next morning uh, and they didn't find anything. Now, the stump knocker, the type of boat that Pat had, is actually a really important detail in this story because it first limited where the family thought to look for him because it's a specific kind of boat made for a specific kind of waterway, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's not that big. I think it was 13 foot and it's a flat bottom. So it's it's kind of built for the Brain River, which is shallow. It's for sort of local fishing. It had a little engine on it, so it's not a speedboat. It's not going to go very fast, very far. Um, and rarely did he take it out of the Brain River, which, you know, you watch in the episode, it's that kind of marshy, mangrovey area. It doesn't get much wake unless it's a real big storm. So that's really what it's designed for. When you get into the Manatee River, it's a much bigger river. You're going to pick up more waves, more wake. It's going to pick up the wind. And you could drive it around in there, but it's just not as comfortable, and it's not really what it's built for. Yeah. It it struck me, too. It was really moving in a way. It's like not really a fancy boat either. It's just sort of like a tootling around weekend hobby kind of boat, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's like what you call a putt-putt, you know. Yeah. Just, exactly. And they would take it out. they fish at night. They would mullet fishing. Yeah, it wasn't by any means a fancy boat. Uh, and in fact, it was kind of beat up, but he loved it. I guess apparently he just loved those kinds of boats and he could fix it up and work on it. And yeah, 
Now, this is the thing that struck me. You know, I'm, I'm, I grew up in a boating town, but I've never owned a boat. But because it was a missing boater, there was this almost immediate search by the Coast Guard and other authorities, which doesn't happen, you know, when someone is missing in their car or their truck. But getting the Coast Guard involved, it's, it's a big deal. I mean, you're, you're, you know, really getting a government agency involved in a major search, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think the Coast Guard was convinced when they found, when they heard the story, I think they realized that you have a very experienced boater out there. He's not back. It's the middle of the night, you know, and they just sort of jumped on it and they, they really came out full guns blaring. You know, they had choppers out there and, and boats and did everything they could. We, I think there's a shot of a helicopter, but they also had big planes flying over, you know, I think with sort of infrared cameras. I mean, they, they did everything they could and didn't find anything. Yeah. So the maps in your episode do a really great job orienting us when it comes to where Pat's house was versus the Manatee River versus the open shipping lane. But can you give us an idea of how large an area this search for Pat covered? Yeah, the search was really big. Uh, the maps are good to a point, but when you get out of the water and you actually drive it from, drive a meeting in a boat from, from the house to where the, the boat was found, it's really far. It's really far. It takes a long time to drive there. Uh, we went out there uh, with Captain Page, and he's got a fast, you know, fishing boat. I mean, to take it out there with a little stump knocker would have taken hours and hours. It's really far. Mm. Uh, and they searched, and they searched the whole Manatee River as well as the on the other side of the peninsula. There's some other waterways. They searched that area as well. I don't know what the square miles or something, but it was a. They searched a huge area. Mm. So the first thing that was found was the boat in that shipping lane. What did the early clues about the boat tell officials about what might have happened? Because that boat was like that was found in an unusual way, in an unusual state, right? Yeah, it was found in an unusual place. It was way out where the big ships, you know, ships going into Tampa Bay was in the shipping lane. So that's really unusual. It's really far from the house, really far from the house. It's really far from the Manatee River. And there was nothing in the boat. There's no, obviously there's no body in the boat, uh, but there's no sense of disturbance. There wasn't like there was a fight going on or anything like that. It was as if you took Pat and just plucked him off the boat. Mm. I mean, his hat was there, his glasses, his sunglasses were there. Um, and that was it. Yeah. I mean, that was it. And and the motor was on idle mode and there was no gas in the boat, no anchor in the boat. Is it fair to assume that the boat was just sort of set to like drift out there? Is that is that what it seems to have happened? I, I think so. I, we had some conversations about whether the boat was was uh, driven out there and that's possible. Towed maybe, yeah. Towed out there. But I know because I had a little stump knocker type boat when I was growing up as a kid. And I know if you put the car, uh, they put the boat in forward and you let go of the motor, it's just going to spin, Yeah, you know, and it didn't do that clearly. So I think it was an idle and it probably ran out of gas, but there was a whole second tank of gas. So it wasn't like Pat was in it and it ran out of gas. It ran out of gas on its own. Somebody left it in idle. The speculation is it was an idle as it drifted out. So we do hear from your fishing boat captain that he spotted Patrick's body floating in the water. I was on my way in from the charter, and as we approached Emerson Point, one of my clients said, Captain, Captain, what is that out there? And I, I started to see what looked like a body, but I wasn't sure. So we eased up to him very slowly. 
And then it clicked. I said, boys, this is that school teacher. It answered the question of what happened to the anchor. But can you describe um, what about the body was particularly unusual when it was found? Well, there's a lot that was unusual. I mean, clearly there was a huge head wound. You know, it turns out it was probably a shotgun, but at the time he didn't know that. But the body was in very good shape, which brought a whole bunch of new questions. And then normally, I think when the body's in the water, it's been attacked by little critters, either um, you know crabs or little fish or something. And there was no, really none of that. The expert, the forensic expert we brought in, uh, that was unusual for her. It was floating with an anchor t- attached to it. But the rope that it's attached to Pat's body was wrapped multiple times around the neck and around the waist. And and that was unusual. It must have taken a lot of time. And if Pat was already dead, a lot of effort to get that rope wrapped around him in just such that way. And that he was attached to the anchor. It was his anchor. Everybody's very clear about that. And it was in a very unusual place. It was interesting to me that, you know, the person who examined his body just seemed so convinced or at least somewhat convinced that he had to have done that rope wrapping himself? Was it because the knots were in front? I just, I, I, I couldn't figure out why it was that he seemed to, to think that because I looked at that rope situation and I'm like, it seemed to me like anybody could have. It didn't have to be him necessarily, right? Well, it would have been a lot easier for Pat to have done it to himself, uh, partly because it's wrapped around so many different ways yeah, and the yeah. knot is tied in front sooner than somebody uh, assuming Pat was was dead by that point to take a body and wrap it like that would have been difficult. It's not to say that Pat didn't do it under duress. I mean, there's so many options in the middle of all that, uh, but it was it was very elaborately wrapped and tied which would have been difficult. Yeah. So we learned that the cause of death is listed as undetermined and officials admit it's just as plausible a suicide as it is a homicide. So let's look at both arguments and start with suicide. The The family doesn't believe that Patrick would die by suicide because he was a happy guy with little or no problems and he had plans for the future, the immediate future and the long-term future. But this also does describe a great many people who have died by suicide. So... Is it sound reasoning or not to say that he didn't shoot himself because he seemed fine? I mean, because that is a question that I found myself asking. Right. Uh, Yeah. You hear a lot of stories of, oh, no, he was fine and he seemed happy that morning. And then it turns out they really did kill themselves. I guess it's always possible. You never know for sure what's going on in somebody's head. But there really were uh, no signs of Pat uh, being depressed. I thought the thing Miles talked about, which was the... The fact that he bought those uh, goggles, those you know welding goggles that morning, if there was any sense that he was going to kill himself today, he wouldn't do something like that. Hmm. We've done a lot of stories over all these years where, you know, suicide, homicide, and the family says, no, no, he really was not that ha- unhappy. And then you start digging into it, you realize, eh, you know, there were signs. We didn't find any, I mean, we just, our sense was absolutely what the family was saying was it really just seemed like a happy guy looking to retire and, and there was no sense that he was suicidal. Right. I mean, there is one thing I we talked about that didn't make it into the show, which was that Pat was suffering from headaches a week or so before he died. Uh, and they were pretty severe and that was unusual. Um, mm. The timing is interesting. It happened just, to, it started the headache started just a few weeks before this happened. Yeah, so you wonder if that was if there is something going on that he didn't tell anybody about. But 
Hmm. In general, he was not depressed or suicidal, no. But, of course, the question I found myself asking, which your episode answers, is whether or not he owned a gun. And the answer appears to be no. He was not not only not owned a gun, but they weren't a gun family, that he wasn't a gun person. He wasn't experienced with guns, it doesn't sound like. And they can't find any financial transactions that tie him to a gun purchase, right? Yeah, exactly. He was not a gun guy. And if he was going to commit suicide you and you were going to buy a gun, you'd just buy a handgun. You'd buy a smaller gun. Why buy a shotgun like that? Right. Which in the demonstration, it's so you know uncomfortable to shoot yourself with a shotgun anyway. And then, of course, where and the fact that it's not a contact when there's all these reasons to say, yeah, it doesn't feel like a suicide. Right, right. So the theory goes that he sat on the edge of the boat, tied the anchor in this elaborate set of wrappings around his body and then shot himself and fell into the water. Was there ever a search near the recovery site for that shotgun that he allegedly may have shot himself with? They did. Look, they actually did a pretty good underwater search near the where the boat was found, which was pretty deep water, looking for anything, the gun or anything else. They actually There was some theory that he jumped off the boat and grabbed onto uh, one of those big uh, shipping buoys and shot himself on that. So they searched in the, in, around the buoy as well. They didn't find anything there. They did look for the gun, never found anything. They didn't search for the gun until after the body was found. And that was uh, sometime later. And who knows what the currents would have done with that gun anyway. Yeah. So I, I don't want to get too graphic into the methods of suicide, obviously, but you do demonstrate that it would be nearly impossible and very, very awkward to hold the shotgun out to the side and, and the way that the the wounds indicate that it would have had to have been held, right? And that is a very right. atypical way to hold a shotgun if somebody were to want to shoot themselves with a shotgun, right? Yeah, exactly. The angle of the gun was made it very difficult. The fact that it wasn't a contact wound, that to me is the most unusual. If you have this big gun and you're trying to adjust it, you would think you'd put it right next to your own head and pull the trigger, but it wasn't a contact wound. So, and we don't know, he couldn't tell us the, uh, ME couldn't tell us how far the gun was away, but it wasn't contact. So that to me also made it seem that a, a suicide didn't make sense. Right, right. So let's talk about the homicide possibility. There were questions about how the rope was tied around Patrick's body, as we talked about. It would have left his hands free to operate that firearm, but the knots used to tie him, they weren't the knots that people would have thought he would have used. So that was another detail. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the way that it was wrapped and the knots that were used, they weren't sailor knots, you know, they were more civilian knots. Another thing that didn't make sense is the way the rope was tied on him when he was found wasn't something that my dad or any boat person would be doing knot-wise. They weren't knots that he would have chosen to use. I think he would have done it with one good knot if he were to have committed suicide. Like Miles says, he says, if my dad really wanted to do it, he would have it would have been much simpler, it would have been much more elegant, it would have been much more efficient. So I think that was one of the things. I mean, there was a lot of rope on the anchor line. So part of the reason I think it was tied up that way was to just waste, you know, use up the, the anchor line that was, was there. But Miles was, you know, very convincing that his dad would have, been, you know, done a simple hitch and been done with it. Hmm. So we saw you do those reenactments with the expert um, and the very nice gentleman who agreed to do the reenactments <laughs> to test some theories. Yeah. Um, 
First of all, I was very worried when he threw the anchor over the side of the boat that he was going to fall over the side of the boat. (laughs) But what else did you learn when you were doing those reenactments? Well, one thing was the anchor. You know, he was a big guy, a strong guy. And and Pat was a big guy. I don't know that he was maybe as strong as our our victim. I thought the anchor would have pulled him over more. Mm. But it, it didn't pull him enough that you you know, wouldn't have been able to sit there. So that was helpful. The one thing I found most interesting was with our with our expert, at, before we did it, she was convinced this couldn't have happened that way. And when we did the demonstration, she said, you know, I'm feeling like maybe it could have happened that way. It didn't convince mm. her that it did, but she was a little more open-minded to the fact that maybe Pat did commit suicide because the anchor didn't pull away as hard because you could position the gun in such a way that it matched the the forensics. Um, so it wasn't completely impossible. In, in it wasn't her... completely impossible. And she, you know, it was, it's nice for a change to, you know, to change an expert's mind with these demos, because most of the time all you're doing is, you know, doing it so that you're, you're reinforcing what the expert has thought. But this time she went, no, it's possible. But then, of course, there's other reasons why she f- finally felt like it didn't happen that way. Right. Well, to me, one of the most glaring and interesting things is that there's no blood spray at all from a potential shotgun blast. No blood in the boat found at all. Um, That brings up a lot of questions, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the big one. That's the big one. I mean, a shotgun blast, particularly to a head, there's so much debris and blood and everything that some of it would have ended up in the boat. And our experts said, well, maybe there was a breeze blowing essentially from, you know, across the boat to blow all the stuff away from the boat. It'd have to be a gale, you know, it'd have to really be blowing hard, I think, for no blood or debris or something to be found in the boat. I think that's Mm. the one that everybody stops and says, okay, well, it probably wasn't. Mm. He probably didn't get shot on the boat, which, of course, then means, well, (laughs) if he wasn't shot in the boat, where was he shot? And the whole, you know, all your new theories start spinning because, well, it's not there where. So the family becomes suspicious of this man, Damon. Mm. Uh, who's a fixture in their lives. Um, they, they say he acts very strangely after Patrick's death. Can you just tell me a little bit more about how Damon fits into this family frame? Yeah, Damon was a family friend. He was friends with Pat's brother, Gray. And every year they'd get together uh, at Lake Placid, which I always thought was up in upstate New York, but no, apparently no. there's a Lake Placid in Florida. Um, oh, really? Yeah, really? that's what that. it was. They kept saying, like, you guys go all the way up to New York? No, there's a Lake Placid in Florida. Do some bobsledding for your yeah. vacation? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so they'd have these sort of uh, Memorial Day weekend uh, family reunions, and Damon would come to these. And, you know, there's probably 30, 40 people, and they'd all get together, and they have cookouts, and they go boating and skiing. And, you know, and Damon was up, was a sort of a fixture in those. So everybody knew Damon, but Damon wasn't that friendly with Pat, per se. It was mostly with Gray, his brother. You know, I think Damon's life is somewhat tragic. You know, he sounded like he was a hell of a chef and had his own restaurant. He worked for, uh, I think it was Cisco or one of those kinds of companies as an executive chef. But he got into uh, drugs and then ultimately crystal meth. And he, you know, he never recovered from that. And so around the time when Pat dies, his behavior apparently started changing. And particularly on the anniversary uh, of Pat's death, he would act sort of more emotional than in a sense he should have been or would have been expected to be. Damon was very upset when, when Pat was missing and presumed dead, almost disproportionately so. He would break into tears. 
And then uncontrollable sobbing, he would come to the house sometimes, you know, early on. I don't think I'd ever seen a, that side of him before. It's hard to know if it's the, just the drugs or if it was something else going on, if there was a certain level of guilt that he was feeling and that was determining his behavior. But everybody seemed to note how strange Damon was acting since Pat's death. Can you talk about that uh, strange demonstration he did? I mean, I know it wasn't an actually demonstration, but the family sort of perceived it as one when he was tying up his dog to his waist. That was oh, a very, yeah. very strange incident. It was sort of strange. I guess he had a dog that came every year. And this this time, it was the Memorial Day after Pat's death. He was acting very strange and he tied his dog up around his waist, which, you know, I think people do, you know, if you mm-hmm, want to keep your hands free. But he tied it up in a way that reminded everybody who knew about how Pat died, reminded everybody that it was drawn in the knot. I think it was particularly the knot was tied the same way. And I saw Damon tie a rope to his dog and then tie that rope around himself. It was in the exact manner that it was on Pat's body. That was uh, extremely troubling. So there were red paint scratches on Patrick's boat, which were similar to the red painted stripe on Damon's boat. And later a a paint test showed that Damon's boat paint couldn't have been excluded um, from those paint scratches. So one thing that I couldn't tell from the video or not, and I had questions about was whether or not the height of the red paint on Damon's boat correlated with the height of Pat's boat because the, because Damon's boat seemed like a little bit taller than Pat's boat. What do you think about that? Yeah. uh, Gray and Miles actually, did their own sort of test demonstration. And I think there's a photograph in the, in the show. It have, it would have to be at a certain angle. It wasn't, if they just bumped side by side, it would not have created it. But if I think it was, if the stump knocker was, was tilted one way, the red paint would have rubbed off pretty much where the red paint was found on the stump knocker. So it wasn't just a, but who's to say that, if these guys did bump against one another, one you know somebody wasn't sitting on the edge of one of the boats and it was twisted that way. Or if the boats were tied together or something like, yeah. Yeah, it's a very certain angle. It's not particularly natural, just two boats sitting side by side, but it certainly could have happened. Right. Um, and, and also, I think the red paint, the, the police said it couldn't be eliminated. Right. The family right. said, if it can't be eliminated, therefore it's a match, which isn't necessarily true. But the flip side is there aren't that many red painted boats out there, particularly in that area. And the police aren't going to say it's a, it's a direct match because paint types are so varied. So police can't say, yes, this is the exact match. So they have to be careful how they put it. So it's this bit of a gray area, but, but we found it sort of compelling that it was similar enough that the police couldn't, couldn't discount it. Yeah. So there's obviously one of the issues with this case. There's a lot of speculation about what could have happened. No one can know. Right. It's like, did he see something he shouldn't have seen? And did he encounter Damon doing something he shouldn't have been doing? And obviously, with the knots being tied the way they were, and I have questions about could it have been one person he have encountered to me? It would have had to have been multiple people. Right. But I have another question is like, who would want to kill a random boater? I mean, do you have other speculative theories that you've been thinking about? Well, I think it could be the scenario that we demonstrated with Damon, but it could have been somebody Pat didn't know. Pat was one of these guys. If you were in distress out on the water, he would go and help you. It, it just makes sense. So it could be that somebody 
was what he thought was in distress. And he went over there to check it out. When you go up to a boat like that, you put it in neutral. You don't turn off the engine because you don't know how long you'll be there. And he could have ran it ran it to somebody who was doing some nefarious things on the water. Um, there was talk about drug trade on the Manatee River. And, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of it back in the 80s. Who's to say it wasn't still happening? It's sort of the, it's always the go-to, uh, am, you know, amateur sleuth. Well, there was probably drug on the river. There was drug on the river back in the day. I don't know if it was still going on. But he could have run into somebody who was doing the wrong thing and, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, that's the problem. You don't really know. I, I, I could see a scenario where he ran into somebody he did that was doing something bad and figured that Pat could recognize him or whatever it was and wouldn't, couldn't let him go. The problem, of course, is, you know, if he wasn't shot on the boat, then you've got this whole other issue, which is they, they took him off the boat, towed the boat out or just let it idle and drift out. Where did that happen? Where did they take Pat? If they didn't kill him on the boat, where did they kill him? Mm. And then they took him back into the water. You know, it's so complicated and convoluted, but it could have happened that way. Well, you got the chance to talk to Pat's wife and his son and obviously has a lot of loved ones who are hoping that something yeah. will come of this story being on Unsolved Mysteries. Do you have hope that the story being on Unsolved Mysteries will help advance the case? Yeah, we always have hope. I mean, in these kinds of cases, the bad guys, bad guy or bad guys talk. Sometimes they just tell people what happened, what they did. And that's our hope is that one of these guys, if, I, I agree with you, I think it's probably more than one. But the, the bad actors, if they talk to somebody and somebody connects the story that was told to them with the show and what happened with Pat, that they'll call the cops and say, look, I think I can help you here. Well, Robert Wise, another great episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I'm really enjoying this season again. Thank you so much for coming back on You Can't Make This Up to talk to me about your direction of another great episode. Great. Thanks. Absolutely. Anytime. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to Robert M. Wise. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your audio. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 